Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is pull leg. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. Live long and prosper. And welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Now, today's guest is an actor from Washington State. You may have seen him in Touched by an Angel, Sliders, Stargate Atlantis as Michael Kenmore, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles as Sheriff Alvin McKinney. Exorcist House of Evil, American Maid as George W. Bush, opposite Tom Cruise, uh, The Fablemans, directed by Steven Spielberg, and I'm trying to think of what else you guys might have seen him in. Uh, oh, yeah, a little show called Star Trek Enterprise as Commander Charles Tucker III. It's Connor Trenier! Yay! Yay! <laughs> Man, uh, right off the bat, Thank you so much. I know you're a busy, busy guy. Um, you know, and thank you so much for carving out the time to talk with me a little bit tonight. Um, let's just dive right in. First of all, I spent the last two years talking about Enterprise. And first of all, thank you for your performance. It was really great. I, I That show went from, oh, this is kind of interesting to, oh, I, I really kind of like this show to like, I love Enterprise. It is so great. And just thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you did on the show. It was absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Uh, my pleasure. I, uh, you know, the uh, the longer it's gone on and the further we've kind of gotten away from having actually done the show, um, you know, the, the show itself is, has gained a lot of, I guess, momentum in a way that uh, initially people weren't really kind of into it. Uh, and I think that uh, over the years, people have, you know, developed an affinity and, and a love for the show that um, we would love to have had uh, with the, the ratings at the time. <laughs> yeah, we we dove into sort of uh, behind the scenes on a lot of different uh, factors. And I, I've I was always the first to say, like, the fact that anything makes it to air is just shy of a miracle just because there are so many moving parts and the bigger something gets the, you know, more hands are involved and more decisions are being made behind the scenes and, and all that stuff. And I just, I, I I've listened to uh, y'all's interviews with uh, Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, David Livingston. And for fans of this show, if they, for some reason have not listened to y'all's show, I highly, highly recommend those interviews because though they really, we take a peek behind the curtain. They practically jerk the curtain off the rod, man. It's they, they give like yeah. the inside track. I think that we have um, a unique luxury with our show, shuttle pod show and that Dominic and I, you know, having been on enterprise and done, you know, conventions for a couple of decades that, you know, the people that we wind up getting on our show, they're, they're our friends. We've already had most of these conversations. We know so much about what's going on and um, truly feel blessed. Um, and maybe it's a testament to um, our relationships that we've been able to, you know, get, get great guest after great guest after great guest and, and, and people who really, here's the goal for what we're doing. Yeah. We're trying to kind of, uh, I guess, um, create a community of people who recognize uh, the value of what Star Trek is. And, um, and I think that there's something about um, the people that we bring on that you don't get to see in a general interview or at a convention with a yeah. Q and a where, you know, we get to sort of ask the question of like, you know, Hey, how'd you get here? Yeah. And I think that's a dynamic yeah. question. You know, how did you, how did you, how did you get, how did you get to that place? And then once you did that thing, then what? You know, how has this 
how has Star Trek, and I can speak for myself, you know, it has been such a dynamic force in my life, having done it and even having finished it and living my life within that world, in the convention world, and um, just the friends that I meet, uh, the people that I see, um, you know, everybody's got, everybody's got a really unique story to tell. And that's what I want to really sort of dig out from someone. I want to find out, you know, how, how did you get to be you? Because here's the thing, what happens is, is you're always cast for a reason. There's something about you that's different. Yes. And I, I'm really interested in, in what, what is the thing about that person that I don't know what they saw, but I can tell you that we get to see as an audience, um, you know, how they sort of flowered as a human being, how they flowered as an artist, how they, how they flowered as um, a, a person in the world. And having done that and then see what they do afterward, I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. I, and I always will. Yeah. And one, of the, one of the things that, that we talked about a lot when we we're pulling the show together is the idea that we have uh, an opportunity to put something together that's basically like a group of friends, a couple of friends, three, four friends sitting around a campfire reminiscing about the awesome adventure they had 20 years ago yeah yeah you know and, and, and everybody has such a unique experience individually yeah. within that yeah. yeah in looking That's at the earnestness uh, that comes with that kind of a conversation yeah uh, you know listening to uh just as an example uh i recently had a road trip and was you know burning through some some podcasts and listened to y'all's discussion with uh nana visitor and I knew she had kind of uh, some dancing in her background and the whole thing. And uh, but you guys dove so deep. I was like, I was just I was absolutely riveted. And I think it, you're, yeah. you're hitting the nail on the head with these interviews of like what brought because we we get to see. And, you know, for the fans, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, uh, three seasons, four seasons, five, six, seven seasons, however long it is. And we see them, you know, for that big chunk of time, but that's, that's a drop in the bucket of somebody's life. And so to explore, Hey, what brought you to this point? And then, you know, if it's over, what happened afterwards? And, you know, how did that affect your life moving forward is so interesting to hear as a, I mean, obviously as a fan, but to remember like, you know, this, this is science fiction and fantasy, but there, there are these people involved. And that's one of the things that we've been talking a lot about on the show, the idea of Gene Roddenberry's vision of reaching the stars. And I've, you know, in looking at the episode have come to the conclusion that if we are going to reach the stars, we have to reach sideways first. We have to we have to make these connections and we're seeing a lot of, you know, stuff like that where people, you know, distance themselves. And and I just, you know, and I'm not sure why or how or, you know, if it's ingrained, if it's learned, if it's or what it is. But I think your show takes that first step in saying, hey, dive deeper, ask, you know, ask questions, be open to listen. You know, if everybody would take that time to be open and listen, you know, I think we would get one step closer to Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Um, but anyways, uh, that's something that is so wonderful about shuttle pod that I'll never be able to bring to that table. You know, it was, we, we, we've kind of set this very particular track for ourselves and, and it's a fun track, especially, you know, looking back, uh, at the TNG era with you guys, or, you know, we're slowly working our way through discovery and, and, you know, and all this stuff, because these episodes are hitting differently today. The episodes that you guys did on Enterprise, you know, followed the the tradition of Star Trek addressing issues of the day. Well, now that has been 20 years ago. And now to look at those things again today, those episodes hit differently. And those lessons are still important, but now we're looking at them you know, 20 years removed, you know, we look at the original series almost 60 years removed. And it's, you know, it's interesting to see that vision of the future, but it's also from our past. And what did we learn? What haven't we learned? And all that stuff is just so fascinating. And again, thank you for being a part of it and contributing to that. Um, And through these interviews, you get to know these folks really, really well. 
when I, you know, was setting up, you know, some of my research uh, for this for this discussion, I, of course, went to your Wikipedia page and I noticed a couple things missing. Would you mind uh, taking a few minutes and answering a couple of uh, smaller detail questions? Then we can beef up your Wikipedia yeah. page a little bit. Page, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so I want to say something, though, just, yeah. just echoing what you just said. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that. I think you have to always look at any series in the franchise in the context of where it lives in the world. For yes. instance, I didn't know. So in our first year, 9-11 happened. Oh, yeah. That radically changed the storytelling of what our show was ever going to be. Yep. Yeah. God. So contextually, you know, we were we were, I think meant to be a thing that got um, adjusted by the way the world was. Mm. And uh, you can't, I do, I, I do believe you cannot watch our show without the knowledge that that was what was happening in our life at that time. And yeah. we were uh, responding to it. Echoing the public sentiment. Yeah, we, we were, we were responding to it in an artistic fashion in a way in which to tell, to tell our story that was influenced by what had occurred. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I, again, it's so fascinating to look back. I remember, I remember that day uh, I was, when I first heard, I was walking from uh second period to third period in high school and a buddy of mine came up and goes, Hey, did you hear it's a plane hit the, one of the towers in New York? I was like, uh, that's, that didn't happen. That's, that's not real. Somebody's playing a joke on you. And then of course events unfolded. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been such a unique journey to, to revisit and see how, you know, uh, cause enterprise dealt with a lot of, uh, xenophobia, uh, that, you know, commenting or commenting on racism through, uh, xenophobia as it was presented on the show. And, you know, and that was just one thing that was kind of set in motion by nine 11 for enterprise and, it, you know, we can play the what if game all day long of like, oh, man, if if it had, if, you know, uh, Enterprise had gone into production six months earlier, six months later, you know, how would the show have been different? But um, it's it's such a wonderful it's such a wonderful marker of that time, just like you were saying, you know, and I mean, you can look at you can look at the 60s and see some markers there. You can look at TNG and see like, oh, they have a counselor on the bridge, like mental health was becoming more, was becoming uh, right. more talked about and all that. So yeah, it's, it's so wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so a couple, a couple of minor details. What, what position did you play in football at uh, Pacific Lutheran, uh, Pacific Lutheran? You remember? Uh, I was a quarterback. Quarterback, really? Oh, that's awesome. Cornerback. Oh, defense. cornerback. I, yeah. uh, I actually played defensive line myself not at Pacific Lutheran. But I was a defensive lineman. I was a very tiny defensive lineman. <laughs> uh, so so uh, do you do you collect anything? You, uh, coins. Do you? Coins, yeah. really? How did you get? How did you? Yeah. When did? How did that? How did that start? Like what? What? What made? What clicked in your head of like coins? I don't know. I I remember um, always uh, liking them, and I, I remember always as a kid. Um, because if if you were to get a dime or a quarter before 1964, it was made of silver. And after that, it wasn't. And I remember as a kid, just sort of kind of being obsessed with, you know, can I find one of those? And then, you know, when I started my career and had some folding money in my pocket, uh, I uh, any anywhere I went around the world, be it a convention or a vacation, I would always um, either purchase or just keep the coins from where, and I had this, I have this, um, it's a, it's a, like a gold panning pan that I put them all in. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and, and I keep them out, you know, I keep them out there for, I like, coins are great, it's tactile, you can grab them and hold them and say, where's that from? Where, there's always a story with a coin. Gosh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I you know, hadn't considered that. And, yeah, uh, and and I have I have several coins that I purchased, um, you know, in in different places around the world. That you know, I I don't God again, I don't even know or care what they're worth. 
but they're yeah. valuable in the sense that you know you know if you if you have you know a, a coin from Italy for the fourth Doge in 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 Venice you know yeah. th that's a period cool. full stop that's a conversation and that's yeah. what I like about coin you know coins elicit a conversation yeah I, you're I absolutely right because I I took a gosh when I was in high school um my church youth group took a trip to Canada and it was my first time leaving the country and I am kicking myself that I didn't hang on to some of those loonies and toonies and um, oh it's fine yeah. it's fine Canadian Canadian coins aren't worth talking about <laughs> you don't want Canadian money. <laughs> comments made by Mark Cartier do not necessarily reflect the comment the only money. <laughs> that's a joke that's for our Canadian friends uh, but I do. I, 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 Canadian I, really, I always felt as though, you know, having this uh, big dish of coins, um, you know, the ones that I put out there, they they elicit a conversation, and I and I love that. I think it's, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a big history buff, and and I and I love what the the dynamic that occurs when someone goes like, "What's that? Where's that from?" Yeah, you know, oh, and uh, yeah, I love. I've that. never seen your money tray. I know. So, oh. <laughs> Keep it away from. <laughs> when you come over, I I put the money away. Oh, no, the produ the producer's coming over. Hide the money tray. <laughs> um. Okay. So, uh, favorite sports team? Do you have one? What are we talking? What are we talking about? Um. Which sport? Oh. Okay. So let's uh let's hit the big ones. Football, baseball. Football. Seahawks. I I I didn't want to assume, but I was like, I bet it's the Seahawks. Uh. Baseball. Yeah. Baseball. Um, the love of my life is a diehard Mets fan. Really? So I am a Mets fan. Um, I'm also a Dodgers fan. Wow. But, uh, I, I swear to God, my girlfriend, Jackie, she, she, um, she even has right now, she's like, pitchers and catchers show up. And she has an app that says like 34 days. She, as a child, um, cut out you know, back in the seventies, you would cut out these little coupons from milk cartons to get tickets to a game. And I mean, it, and she wound up being a season ticket holder wow. and she is, wow. here's the thing. If you can find a girl who loves a sport like you do, oh. la ti da. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, My favorite team of anyone. Yes, please. Is University of Washington Huskies football team. Hey, there you go. There you go. That's, nice. Nice. That, that is that is that is my team. Nice, but my so, favorite sport is baseball, hands down. Nice, yeah. Uh, when I talked with uh, Spencer Garrett uh, last year, he was like hardcore Dodgers. I, I figure you kind of, if you live in LA, it's kind of you kind of have to be a fan of the Dodgers. Am, am I? Am I? Is that? Am I there close? Are some, there are some Angels fans. Yeah, this yeah, also they, you know most of the people. Or transplants, so they take their home. yeah. I tell you, you know, whenever you go to a Dodger game, you've got everybody's oh, yeah. jerseys and hats from all over the place because yeah. you're right, you know, it's like you're at an all star game. Yeah, LA is such a transient town that right. um, it makes me think it makes me think of like seeing those uh, those NFL games from that they broadcast from the UK when they pan to the crowd, it's every jersey, every, every jersey that yeah. they make. <laughs> Um, yeah. So you've mentioned uh, on the show before that you're a big karaoke guy. What is your Gary? What is your go-to karaoke song? Uh, well, uh, the song that will be played at my funeral will be "The Weight" by the band, which is my favorite song. Where a man might find a bed, he just grinned and shook my hand. No was all he said. Take a load off. Take a load off. Oh, that's, <laughs> nice. that's that's my favorite song. Um, you know, the thing about karaoke that it was it's odd, you know, we got hired, this must have been, God, I don't know, ten years ago or so. The creation event at La in Las Vegas, you know, they give you a gig and and they gave us karaoke and I mean, you know, I'm a I'm an idiot, so you get me a couple of drinks and I'll 
I'll sing anything. Uh, <laughs> but uh, people really responded to the way in which uh, Dom and I um, hosted it. And uh, from that point forward, it really became a thing that uh, at a convention, if we were there, that karaoke was going to be a big deal. Nice. And, and I'll say this, I was uh, surprised to find that um, Star Trek fans can bring it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, I mean, I'm telling you, man, there have been times when I was like, Oh my God, listen to that one. That was, that was perfect. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, I, I love, I, I really love hosting karaoke any chance I can get because, you know, there's, I don't know. I, look, at the end of the day, if you're doing karaoke and you got a bar next to you, what you should be doing is having a blast. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's always my goal is to, is to have everybody have the best time possible. Um, and, and we do, and, and I've been surprised and somewhat shocked at, at how good most of them are. Yeah. Now, yeah. You're absolutely mind, right. Some, uh, locations where it wasn't great. Happens. Sure. It happens. Yeah, absolutely. You, you well, just, just you just described that... half of my stand up comedy gigs, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Sometimes our, it's great. Live Sometimes event, it's not. Our live event in uh, February is going to have great karaoke. Is what you saying? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was wondering you know, if we, if we were going to show uh, up, show up, have a song, and bring it. I'll be honest. You know? uh, get get ready for my rendition of "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing" by Aerosmith. That's that's my go to. Yeah, and it get it gets weird because I pick somebody and I lock eyes with them. That's a little weird. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's a little weird. <laughs> That's what I bring to the table, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, it, bring it, sorry, bring it. Yeah, bring uh, it. oh, it's 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 going to be. Yeah, just yeah, go ahead, fire up your cell phones and video because it's going to be worth it. Um, yeah, like I said, you you just described a lot of my stand up comedy gigs. Uh, in listening to an early episode of Shuttle Pod, I caught a comment that you made about the Aristocrats. Now, for folks who don't know what the Aristocrats is, the Aristocrats is a joke that kind of started in vaudeville and it's, and it's the the thing is is like it's the oldest dirtiest joke ever told it's the dirtiest joke ever told yeah yeah absolutely I, it's, it's the joke where comedians try to out dirty each other exactly yeah yes so i won't ask you to do it here but do <laughs> you have you ever done your version of the aristocrats uh you know I, in public no uh i've not but i've been inspired by many of the comic who have told their own in fact um we just lost him i'll say it no um godfrey uh gilford yeah uh gilbert godfrey Godfrey. gilbert godfrey's aristocrats joke is mind-numbingly amazing yeah the best yeah his history history marker it's a it's a history marker because like i mean here we go here we go come back to 9-11 you know, that was kind of one of those first things where the crowds were at a weird place. They were at a really weird place. And his set didn't, he, he cracked a, he cracked the nine 11 joke. Someone yells out too soon. And I mean, we've all seen the documentary. He's just kind of like, all right, here we go. So (laughs) you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Guess what? Here it comes. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. I remember, uh, you know, and you know it, it goes back to um all the best guys um mel brooks um everybody everybody told this joke everybody whether or not it was on stage it was a thing it was a yeah. thing that they yeah, were in a roast it, whatever your aristocrats joke was you had one yep <laughs> which was genius i yeah. love it yeah uh all the S, you know them, uh, especially in the documentary. Uh, look, if 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 you're listening to this and you haven't seen the documentary, even if you're just a casual comedy fan, do yourself a favor, go find it. It's it's amazing, oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know to hear all those stories of the old SNL guys and you know the the guys out of New York, the guys from LA. Sackets might be the dirtiest. Bob Sackets is the dirtiest I've ever heard. Yeah. Gilbert Gottfried's was the best timed. Right. Like, but Bob Saget's was just like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's the thing that I'll, I always forget that it's in there 
They even had some animation. Uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone. They had yeah. they had Cartman doing his thing. Uh, right. Speaking of animation, you worked with Seth MacFarlane for a couple episodes. Do you? Uh, was he? How was it to work with that guy who's not generally known as a Star Trek guy? Although I mean, he's known as a Star Trek fan, and of course, he's got the Orville and everything. Massive he, Star Trek fan. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think his his show lets you know how much of a Star Trek fan he is. Um, so I met Seth at Brandon Braga's house at like a Christmas party. And he was with his girlfriend at the time. And uh, we were just chatting. And I, and I was like, so what do you do? He was like, <laughs> he was like, I, I did a show called Family Guy. It, it had been, been kind of canceled. There was a period of time where like it wasn't there was a span where like they were canceling it or not canceling it anyway right he was like I, I i do family guy have you heard of that and i was like uh yeah what's going on with that he's like well we're, we're not really sure um and i was like so what do you do on it i didn't know who he was at all and he said well i created it I like, what do you mean he was like yeah i was at uh was it rhode island school of design or wh wh wherever he went to school yeah um and and that was his sort of senior thesis and and i was like oh cool well the next season uh he was on our show and he did two episodes with us and every single time i was with him i was just yelling at him trip was he had always done yeah. something wrong and i was yelling at him. <laughs> and uh great guy and then when our show ended i he called me up or i got a call from his reps and they were like, you know, do you want to do an episode of Family Guy? And I was like, sure. And I don't know what the episode was or whatever. I think I played a video store manager and a <laughs> helicopter pilot or something, you yeah. know, one of those things. But Seth has he's always been a great supporter of Star Trek. Um, I think that um, Star Trek inspired him to do all of the wacky stuff that he's done. Uh and um, I'm just a huge fan and he's a great human being. Yeah. One of the things that impressed me, I mean, uh, you know, as a comedian looking at his comedic writing and all that stuff, it's, you know, clearly very talented. But the thing that impressed me the most, you know, co going back to music is his music. You know, uh, we, we covered his episodes uh, in Enterprise, of course, a while back, but we also took a look at some of the Star Trek stuff he did alongside of it. You know, we looked at the fan film he made as a kid and we looked at the pilot episode of Orville and the episode of Family Guy where Stewie kidnaps the cast of TNG and all that. And, um, you know, when I got to the music oh, section, I was, yeah, yeah. And I, I was, you know, when it got to the music stuff, I was just like, oh my God, I had, I had no idea. I mean, there's a lot of music in Family Guy, but I didn't know it ran that deep and it was, it was pretty awesome. So, Mark, uh, right off the bat, I'll I'll start with you. Um, this episode of Discovery, with the jumping back and forth in time, and here we get our second look at Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd. Initial thoughts on this episode? I'm sure this is not the first time you've seen it. Uh, you you are a pretty hardcore uh, trekker. Uh, thoughts <laughs> thoughts on magic to make the sanest man go mad. Uh, I, I mean, I've seen it a number of times, probably three times. Uh, I actually love this episode. This is one of the episodes that really sort of made Discovery what I had to sit down and watch. Mm. Uh, I thought that his casting was brilliant. Um, I really, if you're going to do a time, uh, I like we talk about time travel episodes a lot as Star Trek fans. Uh, time travel can be great, but it can also be just awful. And this is one of those episodes that really... It was fun. It was funny. Uh, there was real character development in it. Uh, there were real consequences. Um, you wanted, it's hard to make seeing the same thing over and over again interesting. And this this episode actually really did it. Um, yeah. And he, you know, Ren Wilson, Wilson, Wilson is so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, in looking at his uh, resume and just kind of running down uh, some of his, greatest hits as it were um you know a lot of people recognize him from the office or recognize him from uh super uh or you know one of his uh more uh popular films but you know looking at everything in total it's like oh 
he's done a lot and he's been in a lot of things and is a pretty multi uh, multifaceted, um, a pretty well-rounded performer. But yeah, uh, so let's let's kind of break some of this down uh, before we get into too much spoiler territory. Uh, you mentioned um, the idea of time travel not being uncommon in the Star Trek uh, franchise. Outside of this episode, do you have a favorite time travel episode of Star Trek? Star Trek Four: Voyage Home. Nice, nice. Yeah, uh, I know it's not an episode; it's a movie. Uh, that counts. City that counts. Forever. Oh yeah, you know, Harlan Ellison, the mechanical rice picker episode. Right. <laughs> uh, my least favorite. Ooh. Uh, there's a handful of good ones. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know what? Um, yesterday's Enterprise. Um, and yes. I don't know. I think there's an argument that could be made that yesterday's Enterprise is actually a dimensional crossover and not a time travel, but uh, the. Regardless, the Enterprise C comes to the future from the past. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I actually just rewatched it recently because we had Denise Crosby on our show. And one of the things that I, the questions that I never asked myself in, 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 when I was younger was, uh, how did the Enterprise C show up in that location? Mm. Like conveniently where the Enterprise D was. Um, but I'm just going to ignore that. <laughs> uh, and yeah. I would call it a time travel episode because the C comes from the past. Um uh that is my favorite episode nice nice yeah no it's a it's a that's a real good one i i really dig it Um, my least favorite is the one where data the what is it arrow of time next generation uh yeah times times errant arrow is that yeah where they go back to san francisco and Whoopi goldberg is there and 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 uh what's his face plays uh they meet mark Mark Twain. twain yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it was a fun episode but it wasn't like it's it's one of those episodes where I feel like I can vacuum the floor while it's playing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I can clean the living room. <laughs> I can even venture into the kitchen and put a sandwich together. Like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think uh, you know, there one of one of um one of the episodes uh, involving time travel that sticks out to me is actually E2 from Enterprise. Um and I don't want to, oh. you know, I may I may save this for later, but I, I know you guys must have heard a thousand pitches for season five of an Enterprise season five. Mine starts with E2. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's like, it's like hold on. You're, you're missing a big one. E2, because that ship that comes back was gone for 100 and, 120, 150 years, something like that. Yeah, that, That's your season five right there. Like. And you could even you could even jump it forward twenty years. Oh, it's a spinoff. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a spinoff. It's a legacy spinoff sequel. Yeah, so that that would be my. And to be Getting honest, serious. like if we did it, if we did it animated, like along the line, that is a very good episode. And I completely like I, it. Didn't I? Yeah, it didn't pop into my head. But you're right. That is a very good one. That is yeah. definitely probably a top three, top five for me. And it's interesting that we can say top three, top five. That's top five time travel episode. There's so many time travel episodes. There's a bunch. Yeah, Uh, there's a bunch. (laughs) Oh, that's a good choice. I respect that choice. And I like the idea. Thanks. Yeah, I I, because, you know, of course, I'm diving back into, uh, as we're recording this, uh, The Legend of Vox Machina season two is about to start. So I'm always... You know, whatever's in front of my face is like, oh, they could do it like this. <laughs> but I was like, honestly, <laughs> yeah. if they did like yeah. a 10 to 12 episode miniseries of like a season five Enterprise, but had it start at E2 and this and it was in this format. Oh, like, ugh, so good. <laughs> my my agent used to play a drinking game where he would guess the book I had just read based on the 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 pitch I was making for what I wanted to write next. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's that's great, man. <laughs> that's so fun. You know, speaking about uh other versions of Star Trek, you know, we we've covered Enterprise and we're kind of we're we're just kind of about ankle deep on Discovery. Um you you before we started to roll, you said you had seen uh the pilot episode of Discovery. Any kind of thoughts about quote unquote your trek versus the new trek the different eras of trek and you know what you've they're seen calling us, they're calling us, Leg- legacy they're calling us legacy trek they're, you know i oh, okay. I, I think they're, they're calling us legacy trek which was you know we would be the last one of that you know which um 
I, I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I sort of look at that as, in a way, the golden age of of of, of Trek. We, we we were the end of that. We were the beginning of um, the whole process and the timeline. Um, look, I think it's one fascinating and and two um, interesting to note that there's like five different shows on now of Star yeah. Trek. You know, it's a juggernaut. Yeah. You know. And I think that we were, in in a way, the end of a certain way in which those stories were told. Mm, mm-hmm. um, again, I don't have a lot of experience with the newer ones in terms of what I've watched. But um, look, you know, I think that the message of Star Trek is carrying on and has yeah. sort of really launched like a rocket um in in today's world uh and i'm i'm awfully proud of being a part of that yeah yeah you're absolutely right this um this episode that we're talking about today uh you know you mentioned the timeline the timeline gets a little funky with this episode uh but before we get too much further into the this episode's discussion let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our patreon supporters rev j jerry antimano Cosmic Crit, Kitty B, and David Willett. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Listen, the ship is in danger. We have been caught in a 30-minute time loop. And every second that you doubt me brings us all closer to death. Intruder alert. Shots fired. One and locked down. Drive overload critical. Wait! Go, go, go! Make yourselves at home. I have. Well, tell your disappointment to suck it. I'm doing a bottle episode. Burnham attends a party on Discovery, where crew members are having drinks, dancing, and playing games. There's a brief power interruption causing the lights to dim. Just then, Tilly approaches Burnham to discuss her recent interactions with Tyler, which included calibrating rifles in the armory and a shared dinner at the end of their shift. Tilly encourages her to give Tyler a sign that she's interested in him before losing her chance. She asks how Tyler compares to Burnham's old boyfriends. Burnham deflects, asking how he compares to Tilly's boyfriends, to which Tilly states that while having been interested in soldiers in the past, she's now going through a musician phase. Tyler then gives a speech to the crowd, honoring those who have sacrificed and died in the war against the Klingons. Tyler then approaches Burnham and Tilly, causing Tilly to leave. Burnham and Tyler are then summoned to the bridge and leave the party, with Tyler noting that she was saved from having to make small talk with him. Burnham apologizes in the corridor, but notes that her experience with parties is limited, in part due to her rank while on board the Shinzu. Tyler notes that's no longer an excuse. Burnham then collides with Stamets, who is with Doc Culber. She apologizes to Stamets, who's being uncharacteristically friendly, talking about how moments like that make life so gloriously unpredictable. He then turns to Tyler, commenting on his height and complimenting him on how grounded he is despite his torture by the Klingons back in Episode 5. Colber apologizes for Stamets' behavior, which causes Stamets to reveal the cybernetic augment Culber developed for him to make his connection to the spore drive more comfortable. On the bridge, Saru notes an unidentified signal ahead. Lorca declares yellow alert. Burnham states that the signal is biological in nature and identifies the organism as a gormagander, a space-borne life form. She also notes that its health is compromised. Lorca cancels the yellow alert, adding that he thought gormaganders were extinct due to hunting. Burnham corrects him noting that their practice of feeding on alpha particles in the solar winds often caused them to ignore their reproductive instincts. Lorca prepares to order Discovery to leave the area, but Burnham tells him that since the creature is on the endangered species list, they're required by law to take the creature to a xenological facility. Lorca agrees. The Gormagander is beamed into the shuttle bay, with Burnham present. Abnormal readings are detected in the creature, which then opens its mouth. A person in an Andorian spacesuit emerges and attacks the Discovery crew, killing several. 
Burnham calls the bridge and declares an intruder alert. Lorca has the intruder confined in the corridor and calls for the situation to end. The intruder takes off their helmet to reveal it's Mud, apparently escaped from Klingon custody. As revenge due to being taken away from his beloved Stella, Mud threatens to discover what is special about Discovery, then sell the ship to the Klingons, and curiously, he says he'll kill Lorca as many times as possible. Lorca notes that he doesn't see this situation ending with the loss of his ship, to which Mud replies, not this time, and notes that he has the data he needs for the next time. After stating that he will see Lorca earlier, he activates an explosive device, destroying the ship. And on that note, we cue the music. Hey. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Burnham is attending the party, watching Tyler give his speech. She and Tyler are summoned to the bridge. On their way there, they discuss her behavior at the party. They begin to enter the turbo lift, but Stamets runs down the corridor and calls to them, talking about how they've been here before, and he seems to be the only one who realizes it. Culber comes running to meet him and apologizes, with Stamets complaining about how no one will listen to him. As Culber takes him away, he yells that everything starts with a Gormagander. Burnham and Tyler are puzzled as the turbo lift doors close. As they arrive on the bridge, a yellow alert is called. Lorca chastises the two for their lateness. Saru explains that the detected signal is not an enemy ship, but a Gormagander. Lorca cancels the yellow alert, while Burnham and Tyler look at each other in a puzzled manner. Saru states that the Gormagander's health is at risk, it's on the endangered species list, and needs to be taken care of. Both Burnham and Tyler advise against it, but Saru says that the Endangered Species Act is quite clear that action needs to be taken, and that failing to do so could put Lorca at risk of a court-martial. Lorca orders the creature beamed into the shuttle bay. Both Burnham and Tyler request permission to participate in the operation, and Lorca says, I don't care! As they arrive in the shuttle bay, Tyler wonders how Stamets knew of the Gormagander, while Burnham points out encounters with them are rare, making it unlikely he would know of one. As the creature is being beamed in, Tyler prepares to draw his sidearm, resulting in a crew member asking if he thinks the creature is armed. Once the creature arrives, Burnham scans it and detects a faint transporter beam. Suddenly, the ship goes to black alert, indicating the spore drive is being used. <gasps> On the bridge, Lorca tells Arium that he didn't order a jump, she responds that she didn't activate one. Lorca asks the computer to show him engineering, but it refuses his request. Lorca orders Tyler to go to engineering to see what's going on. He arrives with Burnham to find the door locked from the inside. The computer announces that the spore drive is three minutes from an overload. They enter engineering to find mud there. Tyler orders him to raise his hands and back away from the controls noting that he won't ask again. Mud states that he will, and also wants to know how the controls in engineering work. Tyler attempts to shoot Mud, but is blocked by a force field. Mud goes on about how he doesn't understand what the devices in the spore drive chamber do, or what they connect to. Burnham asks the computer to beam Mud out of engineering, but he already took control of it. He again demands to be told how to operate the drive but is suddenly shot by Stamets. Burnham tells Stamets that the drive is going to overload, but he already knows. He states that it has happened multiple times before, and he has not figured out how to stop it. Discovery is then destroyed by an explosion. Hey. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. At the party, Tyler asks Burnham to dance, but the two are summoned to the bridge before she can answer. As they leave, Stamets appears at the party in search of Burnham, asking Tilly where they went. On the bridge, Burnham explains about needing to save the Gormagander due to the Endangered Species Act, and Lorca agrees. In the corridor, Stamets intercepts her, demanding that she not talk and just listen. He tells her that the ship is caught in a temporal loop that repeats itself after about 30 minutes. He tells her that the ship is caught in a temporal loop that repeats itself after about 30 minutes. He tells her that the ship is caught... 
She wants to take him to sickbay, believing his behavior to be a side effect of his spore drive use, but he convinces her to go with him. On the bridge, Lorca is overseeing the recovery of the Gormagander when he's called to sickbay. After the turbo lift begins to take him there, the destination is overridden by the computer. The lift stops, and when the doors open, a crew member falls through them with a knife in his back, put there by Mud, who is behind him. Lorca tries to order a red alert, but is overridden by Mud. Mud orders Lorca out of the lift, noting that he doesn't have time to take it from the top, and quickly explains that he fabricated the message to be alone with Lorca, who he wants to help him access a room he has yet to enter. Lorca refuses to help until Mud accesses the self-destruct program. Stamets explains to Burnham what's going on and his belief that Mud has a technology that allows him to repeat the same 30 minutes over and over so he can learn about the spore drive and then sell the ship to the Klingons. Stamets can exist outside the time loop due to the tardigrade DNA compound he injected himself with. He tells her he can't stop Mud by himself and that he'll eventually figure out that Stamets is the missing piece of the spore drive. He believes Tyler knows something about how Mud is controlling the loop and needs her to talk to him about it. To prove to her in the next loop that they had this conversation, he asks her to tell him a secret that she's never told anyone. She whispers it to him, and he says he's sorry. She asks where Mud is, and Stamets replies that this is usually the time Mud kills Lorca. Meanwhile, Lorca brings Mud into his private lab, which is filled with weapons. As Mud picks one up and asks what it does, Lorca points out that killing a Starfleet captain would get the perpetrator locked up for life. Mud then tells how he's killed Lorca 53 times with varying methods, including being shot with a phaser, vaporized, and beamed into space. He then notes that his 30 minutes is about up but that he'll figure out how the spore drive works eventually. Mud then shoots Lorca with the weapon he had picked up, disintegrating him. Babe, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. The power flickers. Stamets interrupts Burnham and Tilly's conversation. Burnham begins to comment on how she didn't think Stamets was interested in the event, but he interrupts her to say, You've never been in love. She asks why he'd say that, and he tells her about the time loop and that he needs her help. She believes him, and he instructs her to talk to Tyler. She wonders why Tyler would talk to her, and Stamets tells her that Tyler likes her. Tyler approaches her to dance, but she tells him that they don't have time for that. Realizing that put him off, she attempts to correct herself, but the two are summoned to the bridge. Tyler departs. Burnham then leaves with Stamets, noting that she'll not be able to be alone with him again before the timelines reset. She's upset with herself for blowing a chance to fix things, but Stamets tells her the situation is more complicated since she likes Tyler. He asks her to dance, for science, so he knows what he's working with. Burnham doesn't understand how to step out of her corner and connect with someone. Stamets tells her about how he and Culber fell in love, through Stamets telling him to get lost due to the music he was humming. Burnham notes that doesn't make sense, but Stamets explains that he and Culber value each other's honesty, and that it's the foundation of relationships. With Stamets noting that she has to do better the next time, the ship is destroyed. Babe, I got you, babe. seeks out Tyler after his speech, asking him to dance. After a moment, she asks him about being in the Klingon prison cell with Mud. He notes that she's not one for small talk, and she replies that she never understood it. She does understand that relationships are built on honesty, and as such begins to tell him about Mud and the time loop. Tyler wonders why Stamets didn't speak to him. Burnham notes that he tried without success but feels that since the two like each other, Burnham would be more successful. The two kiss. They are then summoned to the bridge, but she asks him to ignore it. Tyler then tells about how Mud once bragged about robbing a Betazoid bank and defeating its security measures using a time crystal. They meet with Stamets to go find out if Mud indeed has such a thing. Meanwhile, Lorca's on the bridge, overseeing the recovery of the Gormagander, 
wondering where Burnham and Tyler are. Suddenly, music starts playing, which Lorca and Saru can't shut off. Mud enters the bridge, reduces the volume, with the computer referring to Mud as Captain. Mud beams Lorca into the brig, and threatens the crew with weaponized dark matter capsules. Tyler, Stamets, and Burnham enter the bridge, but a force field prevents them from shooting Mud. It doesn't prevent him from using a capsule on Tyler, who is painfully disintegrated. Mud then threatens to disintegrate the entire crew, starting with Saru, but Stamets comes forward as the missing piece of the spore drive. Mud beams himself and Stamets to engineering. Burnham and Tilly examine the Gormagander in the shuttle bay and discover Mud's ship and its larger time crystal. However, they need more time to figure out how to stop the loop, but Tilly points out that Mud no longer has a reason to reset the loop himself, as he already has everything he needs. Burnham thinks otherwise. Mud is recording a captain's log in the ready room when Burnham enters to see him. While she's there, he sends a message to the Klingons about their location. Burnham then identifies herself as the killer of Tukuvma and points out that the Klingons would pay a lot to get her, even more than for discovery. Before Mud can stop her, she commits suicide with one of the Dark Matter capsules. Mud then destroys Discovery. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Stamets informs Burnham and the others about what's happening, and the crew is prepared for Mud's arrival on the bridge. To Mud's surprise, Lorca offers Mud his chair. Mud doesn't believe the crew would give in to him, but Stamets tells him that the loop must end for everyone's sake. Lorca offers Mud a deal. He can have Discovery and Burnham if the crew is spared. Lorca doesn't want to kill his crew again, as he did on the Baran. Mud accepts the deal and sends a message to the Klingons right before the time crystal disintegrates, removing his ability to reset time. A vessel hails Discovery, after which Mud leads Burnham and Stamets to the transporter room to receive two people from that vessel. On the way, Stamets tells Mud that if he was truly distraught over not having his Stella, it wouldn't have been difficult to find her, as her father, the Baron Grimes, is an arms dealer who's made a fortune selling weapons due to the war. Mud wonders how Stamets could know that, and Burnham tells Mud that the computer archives are a non-critical system, one that Mud didn't take control over. Now that his time crystal is gone, he can't reset the loop to correct that mistake. Stella's been looking for him since he skipped out on her and the dowry from her father, who put out a reward for Mud. Tyler arrives, which distracts Mud enough for Burnham to take Mud's weapon. Mud notes that the Klingons are still coming, but Tyler tells him that he rewired the captain's chair, another non-critical system, to actually send a signal to Grimes. The Baron and Stella arrive on board, and after some conversation with Mud, agree to take him away and keep him away from Starfleet. Burnham and Tyler talk about Stamets telling them about their interactions during the time loops. Tyler notes he's sad at having missed their first kiss. The discovery then goes back to its usual business. How convenient! So we're seeing uh, one of the fun things, and, and I think they do it really well in this episode, is sort of, they get stuck in a time loop and they go back and forth, uh, you know, or they go back and forth throughout the episode in time. And it made me think of Groundhog Day. Bill Murray, uh, you know, classic sort of time loop uh, comedic presentation of time travel. Do you have uh, any favorite time travel movies? Time Bandits. Oh, one of my favorite wow. Nice. Time bandit. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I I'll, I'll be okay. So, <laughs> little peek behind uh, the podcast curtain here. I'm actually on another show called Cinema Shock, where we cover the stories behind the stories of cult and genre films. Um, our historian on that show is a diehard Time Bandits fan. He Jeez. is gonna love that you said that. <laughs> Funny. So when I was a kid. Uh, um, uh, my parents, for some reason, decided that you know, uh, you know, the, the the VHSs were coming out, but they decided to buy a, a beta machine. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> because it's higher, higher quality. More expensive. And uh, only there, there were only a couple movies available to purchase. And one of them was Time Bandits. And uh, it's we just lost him. Um, um, the guy who plays the Lord in that. Uh, Is that uh, uh, David Wells? David. David, David Warner. Yep. David Warner. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he did, he did some, he did a big episode of next gen. Yeah. 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 Uh, and um, I just fell in love with that movie, you know, John Cleese, um, the whole nine yards um, other time travel. Oh, I forget the name of it. Christopher Reeve did a movie with um, Penny. somewhere in time, somewhere in time. That's it. Yeah. Somewhere in time. What I, 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 I adore that. I movie. love that. Love yeah. it. Christopher Reeve and um What's her face? What's her name? Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Um Yeah, yeah. You uh, know who I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's such a oh, good yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many people who've never That's heard true. of it, but it's so good. So good. Um yeah, yeah those, I, those two would I come to mind. Yeah, those uh gosh, I remember that first time. I think my I want to say my parents got it as some sort of, oh, we're gonna have a at-home date night, you know, and watch this thing called Somewhere in Time. And it's this romance. I saw the cover, I was just like, oh, whatever. Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour, yes. Oh, yeah. So, and just just and at gorgeous. first you're like at first you're kind of like dirt, 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 dirt with the movie, and then it just begins to unfold. It's interesting yeah. how over the last 20 years, how often that movie comes up in conversations like this. It's, really? Yeah. It's so good. It's such a good movie. That uh, uh, paired with um, Forever Young, um, Mel Gibson, Jamie Lee Curtis, and, and Elijah Wood, who looks like he's like eight years old. Or Yeah. yeah that, one's, that one's fun. Um uh, yeah, you know, there's a there's a couple out there that are really great. If if you're out there and you're looking for good time travel movies, um, Twelve Monkeys. Twelve Monkeys. Yes. Oh God, I can't believe I forgot Twelve Monkeys. Um, time Crimes. Uh, is Spanish language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, time Crimes is a great one. Uh, if you're really into like the super heady science fiction element of it, Primer is great. But uh, Star Trek First Contact, it's it's like super like 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 primer. It's so heady. You said it just right. It's such a brain f. Oh yeah. If you Um, make it past the opening credits, you're okay. But I mean, those first few minutes, they are firing off some techno babble. I had I actually I got to meet that filmmaker, and he is insanely genius. Uh, I forget his name now. This was like yeah years ago. Yeah, I, I remember watching a couple of behind-the-scenes stuff with him, and I was like, "Oh, this dude's on another level." Clearly, oh, he's on another level. He like used the computing power of Amazon's initial uh, global enterprising cloud service to render his effects for Jesus. free, uh, like for something he was doing. He just figured out how to do it and like connected the whole Amazon horseshit to him. Yeah, God. it's nuts. And it's such a, it's such a, the the movie itself, the premise is so simple. I mean, I think it's even on the poster. What happens if it works? And these guys accidentally, accidentally invent time travel. And then they, it it plays out from there. They start playing the stock market, but then, you know, stuff gets weird. There was an independent movie about uh, a small group of friends who start a business together. And they, they started in their garage and they're building computer chips or something like that. They're sending them out in the mail and they're selling whatever to people who buy them off the internet or something. And it's, you know, whatever. It's nothing to call right home to mom. But, and and it, like they all have ideas that they get to put forward that the group has to work on. And they come up with, the one guy has an idea for something. A box, right? A box? Yep, they make it's a, a box. box. And what they accidentally do is invent time travel. <laughs> and when they realize what has happened, they yes, yes, they they start trying to take advantage of it. Uh, but it and it they get bogged down in this like cycle of time travel. Yeah, you know. I just just as an example, like the first the first big thing they do, which kind of is a no brainer, is like, well, we're going to play the stock market. Okay, smart idea. But what they have to do is they have to live through the end of the trading day and then go back to the beginning. So their 24 hours just turned into 36. So now that there's consequences to their decisions and it right, just right. 
it just develops from there. But yeah, it's great. But yeah, I I recently watched rewatched um, First Contact. You know, Star Trek First Contact, directed by Jonathan Frakes. Um, that's that's a great one. That's kind of a pivotal moment because that ends up kind of starting. They go back to just before Enterprise, and then there's even a sequel episode to that within y'all's episode where you encounter the Borg. Yes, yes. Uh, First Contact sort of immediately predated uh, uh, the launch of Enterprise, and they referenced that movie a lot in Enterprise. Like, I think Jeffrey Cochran, Cochran played by um, Cromwell, Krom- yeah. uh, uh, even does like a send-off speech when they're launching Enterprise in the pilot episode um, yeah. of Broken Arrow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this uh this episode was directed by uh David Barrett, who uh did Enterprise who did a couple things on Enterprise. The last episode that we saw, you know, in our in our coverage was season four, episode 16, Divergence, uh, which we covered with pop artist Dwayne Ballinger back on episode seven seventy-eight. Uh Connor, um what's david like as a director like what's his style what's you know what's what's a david barrett set like do you recall well, david was great he was a um a, a super positive force on set i i do remember that we had to reshoot something um in one of the first episodes that he directed for us because uh tonally um the producers had said that no, this isn't quite Star Trek. Uh-huh. So Dave had, you know, different ideas about what it was meant to look like. And um, you know, when when you do a show, the the tone is set by the initial director. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave had other ideas, I think. And and ultimately, you know, we we had to go back and 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 redo. I believe a scene, the first scene that he directed because he had different ideas about how to use the camera and yada, yada, yada. And um, he was always just, he was, you know, he was a contemporary in terms of our age. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I liked him a lot. I thought that he had such great ideas about um, how and which to tell our story. Uh, he had to then, you know, navigate that with, you know, the powers that be, but um he was always just such a, a positive force uh, as a director. Yeah, it seems like I because you've spoken um, quite a few times about uh, setting the tone on set, you know, and how Bakula was kind of a very positive force. And, you know, I'm sure every director sort of brought a different flavor. But, you know, I, I imagine they are also a tone setter as well. You um, were also directed by a couple of former Star Trek cast members uh, off the bat here, Roxanne Dawson in the bottle episode uh, Dawn uh, that you did. You just had Greg Henry on on your show uh, and it was a wonderful discussion. Um, How is how is Roxanne Dawson directing uh, with you and Greg there kind of in that in that uh, particular story? Do you recall a lot? I think that Roxanne cut her teeth as a director on our show. Um, she's gone on to do just amazing things. A ton of stuff, yeah. I think that that she began to learn her particular way of telling a story as a director on our show. Um, She was great. It's it's always interesting to to have someone who has an actor's sensibility directing something. Yeah. Um, Because they ask you different questions they uh, pull things out of you that are specific to a language that we all speak as actors. Yeah. And I always appreciate that, you know, not only her, but, you know, LeVar. LeVar was my favorite director because um, he directed so many of my episodes that were that were sort of big and heavy on me. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Cogenitor and Similitude right off the bat. That was season two, episode yeah. 22 and season three, episode 10. Those those are phenomenal episodes yeah you know and and i think that actors who have taken on the mantle of being a director have a shorthand of of what they want to get from you Mm. sometimes you have a director who's like it doesn't really matter right now what's happening because we're going to cut this in editing and we're going to go there and you're like well i want to do the whole thing because it's what my character would do and if it's not good let me let me me do the whole scene 
Right. You know, and I think that 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 directors who come from an acting background understand that more. Mm. And uh, and I think it's ultimately you, you're creating an environment that is about telling a story. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not something is useful or not after, you know, 30 seconds or 45 seconds matters less than the opportunity for you to continue to tell that story. Yeah. You know, so I think that that um, Roxanne being one, LeVar being another, that, that you know, they, they gave you the opportunity to just sort of explore at every chance the whole scene. Yeah. Which matters. Yeah. I remember listening to... Um character actor uh steven tobolowsky and him taught he his big thing was uh that he focused on was the moment before you know what what's happened the moment before before you go into this scene and really really making those connections to kind of live in that timeline of you know the chain of events um i wanted to ask you about because in looking at roxanne dawson's episodes because she's done a bunch uh, she did a bunch on enterprise so did lavar um i wanted to ask you because it seems like roxanne's stuff kind of almost had some horror movie elements to them and lavar's episodes seem to have more character centric themes and tones and and narrative was there do do they get to choose kind of do they get to kind of pick and choose what stories they want to direct or i mean Uh, you're a hired gun 